Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you again from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in conjunction with Vera Med. Remember that last time our previous episode was a discussion of how omega-3 fatty acids might ameliorate the inflammatory response, specifically associated with adipose and more precisely, obese adipose tissue. And what I want to do today is continue along that arc and get more into a heavier discussion about the metabolism that may be behind this potential suppression of inflammation as induced by the ingestion and metabolism of the essential fatty acid, alpha-linolenic acid, which of course is an omega-3 fatty acid. So let's just get going right here. I'm going to recap real briefly The white adipose tissue is, of course, a a depot fat. It's also a diffuse endocrine organ. Unfortunately, it can be infiltrated with inflammatory immune cells. From that, you can get pro-inflammatory cytokines generated. You can also have pro-inflammatory T cell lineages in that adipose tissue. They can accumulate there, such as Th17 in particular. And the activation of that particular Th17 pro-inflammatory cell lineage is actually driven by another system in adipose called adipose tissue-derived stem cells, or ASCs. So we can talk about obese ASCs versus non-obese. So obese ASCs are responsible for Th17 promotion. And we know it works through the STAT activation pathway which is a kinase cascade intracellularly uh, that controls gene expression. We also know that the ICAM, which is a surface membrane receptor, which is involved in adhesion working within the extracellular matrix. So these are adhesion molecules on the surface of cells. So we talked a lot about how NF-kappa B is involved, how omega-3 fatty acids seem to Um, decline in obesity in adipose tissue. And if you can give high levels of omega-3 fatty acids, it appears that it affects some of that signal transduction cascade that's associated with inflammation. Therefore, it can resolve or it can turn over that inflammatory response. So that's where we were roughly last time. (laughs) So I want to now get into more about the lipid metabolism itself. Of course, I'm a lipid biochemist, and so this is important to me, but it's also important for you to understand what this paper is trying to say. So you have fatty acids, which can be oxygenated. It's not oxidized. Oxygenated means molecular oxygen is added directly, often to where double bonds are in polyunsaturated fatty acids. So there are multiple enzymes which carry out that oxygenation. One are called cyclooxygenase, a family of enzymes. And in fact, aspirin knocks out one of the members of that family. It acetylates the cyclooxygenase. It's called COX or COX. And when it does that, that's how aspirin functions to decrease inflammation, particularly associated in some circumstances and in some literature as um, kind of an immunosuppressive Um, therapy, monotherapy actually, taking aspirin every day for controlling reactive oxygen species generation in the heart muscle, right? You've heard this, been going on for over 25 years. 
Now, the only way that works is if you have an omega-6 fatty acid. The common omega-6 fatty acids are coming from the other essential fatty acid. It's called um, linoleic acid. So linoleic acid is an omega-6. Alpha-linolenic acid is an omega-3. So those two fatty acids get metabolized. The omega-6 gets metabolized primarily to arachidonate, which is an omega-6, 20-carbon fatty acid with four double bonds. Now, via those Cox and LOX reactions, LOX is lipoxygenase, by the way, oxygenation, different mechanisms, but basically the, uh, the overall underlying result is adding oxygen, molecular oxygen. Um, Arachidonic acid can be metabolized to prostaglandins, leukotrienes, thromboxanes, and lipoxins. The first three of those are all pro-inflammatory, typically. First, omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids will get metabolized to eicosapentaenoic and docosahexaenoic, and they can generate these things called resolvins, okay? So resolvins originate from eicosapentaenoic acid um, and DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, and of course they're a component of the armamentarium generated downstream from omega-3 puffa. Puffa means polyunsaturated fatty acid. So what they basically are resolving is they resolve inflammatory mediation. So they, they're, they tend to be suppressive of the immune response. Now, when that's happening at the fatty acid level, fatty acids never exist free. They're always associated with, say, a sphingosine backbone or a glycerol backbone or sometimes as esters um, to things like cholesterol. Those fatty acids are never free or maybe even sometimes esters as coenzyme A or as an acylcarnitine, or as amide-bound fatty acids. That's where, where you can do things with fatty acids. They're not just free in the, in the cytoplasm because they're hydrophobic molecules. Uh, they're aliphatic, long-chain, uh, monocarboxylic acids, so obviously. And the longer the chain, the less um, soluble they are in aqueous. So the phospholipids themselves, like sphingosine, sphingosine-1-phosphate, um, uh, lipo, uh, uh, lysophosphatidic acid, sphingosine base, ceramide, ceramide 1-phosphate. All these lipids also play roles that I've talked about previously in other talks in the inflammatory response. So you have to keep track of the fatty acids that are bound to those lipids, as well as the lipids themselves carrying out pro-inflammatory responses because they do things like bind to specific receptors or they trigger adapter molecules, which can then associate with transcription factors, which can translocate to the nucleus and induce the expression of genes by chromatin remodeling, and in such can induce, say, an inflammatory uh, a cytokine storm. Um, or they can generate growth factors, which can ultimately lead to the proliferation or activation of more pro-inflammatory cell lineages. So keep that in mind. Now, ceramide is generated from sphingomyelin. And ceramide, what it does is that basically it induces apoptosis. Okay, so you get a ligand binding to a death receptor. Let's say it's on a uh, T cell. So that would be like programmed death ligand and programmed death receptor, part of the checkpoint inhibitor pathway for killing tumor cells. Well, they can bind to tumor cells that may or may not have that receptor, but often these ligands are generated by the tumor. They bind to the receptor on the T cell, and what they do is they, gen they activate after the receptors are activated, and adapter molecules go through kinase cascades. Caspase 8 is turned on, and caspase 8 can turn on the back 
bead system in the mitochondria that can also cause uh, the production of ceramide because of the induction of sphingomyelinase, breaking down sphingomyelin. So now that induces caspase 3. Caspase 3 causes apoptosis via the canonical pathway. Ceramide also induces the release of cytochrome C from the membrane, mitochondrial membrane. Now, that can function through a lot of different ways, but one of the ways it does is it, um, ceramide that is, is it can also help induce the SMAC Diablo pathway, which blocks the IAP, which is the inhibitor of apoptosis, which is a common protein found in all cells, keeping apoptosis from occurring. So there are mechanisms to activate, like think of them as proactive to turn on apoptosis, which is a good thing if it's a tumor cell, a bad thing if it's a, it's a T immune cell, unless you have an auto-inflammatory, autoimmune response, then it again could be a good thing. Um, so there's a direct disruption of the cell through the caspase 3 pathway, caspase 8, caspase 3, and then also ceramide can induce the cytochrome C pathway, working through smack Diablo, and, and also will involve the synthesis of an apodosome, which allows caspase 9 to bind to APAP1, and all of that can help inhibit the IAP protein and allow for programmed cell death pathway to increase. So that's just one lipid of all the lipids I just mentioned to you, like the sphingosine pathway and whatnot, and the uh, lysophosphatidic acid, which are, of course are glycerol lipids, all of which are involved in pro-inflammatory response intercellularly, and sometimes even extracellularly because they could be secreted. Some of those compounds can be secreted. But I want you to get the idea that that also can regulate inflammation. So if you get apoptosis, that's, of course, programmed cell death, but that's one of the ways that inflammation works, right? By killing cells. And they can, in some of the ways uh, the apoptotic pathway can occur is by signaling molecules, such as certain cytokines and certain growth factors and transcription factors, to kill a cell that's itself causing trouble because it's making a lot of pro-inflammatory molecules, okay? So I want you to understand that all this kind of work has been published in lots of places. You can go back and look at the Cold Spring Harbor paper of 2013, February. Uh, that would be volume one of that uh, journal that talks a lot about the ceramide pathway I just mentioned to you. Now, also keep in mind that fatty acid and lipid metabolism is dynamic, and it occurs intracellularly at three locations. The endoplasmic reticulum membrane, the outer mitochondrial membrane, and also at the peroxisome. So for example, the ER membrane, you've got um, the synthesis of acyl-CoAs, esterifying to glycerol-3-phosphate, making lysophosphatidic acid. So this is on the way to producing what? To producing glycerolipids. So LPA then is uh, acylated again via acyltransferase, and you get phosphatidic acid. Phosphatidic acid could be dephosphorylated diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol can be reused to make phosphatidylethanolamine, phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylcholine. All of those lipids in the membrane carry on not just membrane fluidity and membrane integrity functions, but also can be involved in signal transduction cascades. Ultimately, though, diacylglycerol could also make triacylglycerol by adding one more fatty acid. That triacylglycerol, depending on what cell type it is, can be loaded onto, if it's a liver cell, for example, the VLDL, very low-density lipoprotein, or it can form a lipid drop if it's in another cell lineage, for example, in muscle cells, skeletal muscle. All right. I won't tell you what outer mitochondrial membranes do or what 
peroxisomes do, but they're, they're as complicated or even more complicated and integrated in what the ER membrane is doing. This is all just lipid metabolism, normal canonical lipid metabolism, but remember, this is always going on in the cell. So any one of those enzymes is coded for any number of genes, and any one of those genes, if they are mutated or they're altered in their expression because of, say, epigenetic phenomena, methylation patterns, acetylation patterns, and whatnot, all of that can then trigger a pro-immune or an anti-immune response, even in cells that aren't themselves immune cells, like T cells, or dendritic cells, or macrophages, or mast cells, or neutrophils, right? So even uh, epithelial cells can, can do some of this uh, cytokine production, for example, and then generate an inflammatory response. So there's a lot to do with this, right? Talking just about EPA and DHA coming from dietary alpha-linolenic acid, depressing inflammation. You're having a big effect on the synthesis of those fatty acids, which have to be elongated and desaturated. Um, and then they can be used to be oxygenated into really reactive eicosanoids. That's going on at the same time the backbone metabolism is occurring, all of which can be concerted effort to be either suppressing inflammation, promoting inflammation, or somewhere in between in specific routes and pathways that are indicative of the regulation of the control of cell fate and tissue fate and organismal survival. So when you make a sphingolipid, of course, you start with palmitoyl-CoA and the amino acid serine, and then you go through a series of steps and you make a couple of really important pro-inflammatory and pro-apatotic lipids, for example, ceramide. And then you can also make anti-apatotic uh, lipids just by phosphorylating things like ceramide or sphingosine to the phosphorylated derivatives. So there's a lot of that going on too. And then you can remove that phosphate again and move it back into metabolic play. So I want you to keep all of this in mind. All right. So the conversion, for example, of sphingomyelin to ceramide, I just told you, can induce apoptosis also plays a structural role in the membrane, right? And the consequences of that are an alteration of the microdomain function of that membrane. It can include membrane vesiculation or fusion or fission. It can generate vesicular trafficking. And all those processes, of course, are going to contribute to cellular signaling, modulation of cellular signaling. At the Golgi, for example, ceramide takes part in overall metabolic flux towards sphingomyelin, Okay. Because uh, you can synthesize sphingomyelin from ceramide. You can also make di diacylglycerol and you can make glycosphingolipids, which then drive lipid wrath uh, formation and further vesicular transport towards the plasma membrane with a cargo of proteins such as GPCRs and other receptor proteins like ICAMs that can mediate how the cell reacts with its, ex with its extracellular milieu and also with other cells that are trying to signal to it via direct adhesion, like to those adhesion molecules, or via things like uh, ligands binding to the receptors. So that's all, it's all also happening. Ceramide can also affect directly the permeability of the membrane, outer membrane, and that's what I told you, release the cytochrome C, which gives you the canonical apoptotic pathway. So there's a whole lot going on there. And remember that each of those fatty acids that are involved in what we're talking about being immunosuppressive can be covalently bound to these lipids. And every time you have a different fatty acid bound, let's say it's arachidonate versus docosahexanoate versus palmitate, those lipids now are a different molecular species and they're going to have various valences 
and either being pro-apatotic, anti-apatotic, pro-inflammatory, pro-autophagic, anti-inflammatory, anti-autophagic, or simply just rearranging transcription factors so that you get a suite of new, uh, a, a parade or a symphony of new genes being expressed that can trigger and alter metabolic fate of proteins turning over that could be doing other functions like say in, in biological pathways, like say nucleotide pathways, even cell cycle rearrangements. To, to, so you can go into a cell cycle, you can be quiescent or you can be involved in DNA synthesis. But also, of course, just how the overall processing of biofuel in those cells work, glucose versus fatty acid versus amino acid. Uh, so now endothelial cells are also involved in this. Endothelial cells actually have a sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor. And when sphingosine 1-phosphate binds to endothelial cells, for example, in smooth muscle, in smooth muscle uh, or in, in uh, lined vessels, right, um, you can get angiogenesis and you can get lymphangiogenesis, okay? just by sphingosine 1-phosphate binding to the receptor on endothelial cells. Also, you can get inflammation if it's bound to inflammatory cells. Sphingosine 1-phosphate also reacts and works through the ABC transporters and the SBNS2 pathway. And when that happens, you get intracellular targeting, okay? And that can also allow sphingosine 1-phosphate to go move through that ABC transporter out into the extracellular matrix where it can interact with those other endothelial cells or inflammatory cells. You can also get sphingosine 1-phosphate binding directly to a cancer cell, to a receptor, and that can induce proliferation, migration, and survival, or basically a metastatic tumor growing. So all of that is also being functioned. So you got to understand that these lipids can leave different cell types. They're carrying different fatty acid moieties, so there's different molecular um, uh, uh, species of these lipids, and they're going to have different valences on all that activity I just mentioned to you. Either being anti-cancer, pro-cancer, pro-inflammatory, non-inflammatory, quiescent by controlling biofuel economy, therefore controlling glucose transport and uptake, therefore controlling fatty acid uptake, therefore controlling lipoprotein metabolism, and serum levels of triacylglycerol, serum levels of cholesterol. You see, this is how obesity keeps on coming back to play a role. Now, there are specific things that happen when you take aspirin, and they're called AT or aspirin-triggered pathways. So when you take something like an omega-3 fatty acid and you make a EPA, EPA can react with the enzyme cytochrome P450 hypoxygenase. Uh, it can also react after COX has been acetylated with aspirin, and that can shut down COX-2 and promote 5-lipoxygenase. Then you're going to get resolvins E1 and resolvin E2. You can also get the, that EPA going through the lipoxygenase pathway of 1215, not the five locks, but the 1215 locks, different isoform of the enzyme, working on different double bonds in the fatty acid. And there you can make a resolve in E3 class of resolvents, which is a press. DHA similarly can go to a 15 five locks. They, they can make the resolve in Ds, okay? So the D stands for DHA. And there's also the aspirin triggered COX working, uh, metabolizing the DHA. And that can make uh, RVD1, RVD2, and RVD3. And those are called ATRVDs. AT stands for aspirin triggered. So even aspirin itself is going to change the metabolic fate of lipid metabolism. Now, paper published in Frontiers of Immunology in October 23rd, 2017, talks about 
hydroxyicosatetraenoic acid and epoxyicosatetraenoic acid. So linoleic acid is the precursor to arachidonate. This is the omega-6 pathway. And either using CYP450, which makes the hydro hydroxyicosatetraenoics and the icosa, uh, epoxyicosatetraenoic fatty acids, or the lipoxygenase pathway for arachidonate, making lipoxins and leukotrienes, or arachidonic acid metabolized via the COX pathway, making prostaglandins and thromboxanes. All of that, or at least most of what I just described to you, is pro-inflammatory. Only the lipoxin arm of that is non-inflammatory for the omega-6. Now, when alpha-linolenic acid comes on the scene, it produces, once it's metabolized, DHA and EPA. DHA can also be reacted on by um, cytochrome P450, and it can make epoxides, which are resolving. That, that molecular species of the epoxide is a resolving or suppresses the immune response. Or DHA can be converted to the resolvents D and also these compounds called maresins or maresins and protectins. And those are a subclass of endogenously produced specialized pro-resolving mediators called SPMs. And basically they can act as, uh, for one thing, novel antiplatelet agents. Yeah. So SPMs are recently discovered class of lipid-derived molecules that drive the resolution of inflammation without being overtly immunosuppressive because they work locally. So isn't that interesting? Also, EPA can be metabolized by the CYP450 or by COX, and you can go ahead and make those resolve in E uh, isoforms that we just talked about. So this is what's going on. <clears throat> now, you know, in order to get fatty acids in play, you have to take a phospholipid. You have to remove the fatty acid, usually from the two position if it's a glycerophospholipid. If it's arachidonic acid, it's going to go through COX-1, which is a constitutive enzymatic mechanism, or COX-2, which is induced specifically by the inflammatory stimuli. COX-1 is going to make thromboxanes, and it's going to generate platelet aggregation, platelet activity. It's also going to make these prostacyclins and uh, prostaglandins of the E2 class. That's going to usually help control GI um, inflammation because it's going to be functioning in GI mucosa, and it can be cytoprotective there. It can also kill off evading pathogens. Likewise, recognized acid can go through the COX-2 pathway, which is induced by inflammatory stimuli. It's going to make prostacyclins of the two class and also prostaglandins of the two class, and that can lead directly to inflammation, pain, fever, and the resolution of that. And finally, as I said, arachidonic acids can be metabolized via the lipoxygenase pathway. That can make leukotrienes like LTB4, LTC4, LDT4. All those are, are involved very importantly in inflammation and gastric lesions. In fact, those are very important vasoconstricting compounds. Those are called peptidoleukotrienes because they utilize glutathione, like covalent glutathione, or elimination products thereof. All right. So... I want you to get this overall picture that in order to, in, when you're talking about the mucosa, okay, and you're talking about the lumen and you're talking about the mucus layer, I want you to get involved in what's going on there. In order to counteract a pathogen invasion, epithelial cells are able to induce and release in the luminal mucus antibacterial and indeed endotoxin neutralizing molecules. And those are a part of the bactericidal permeability increasing protein, or BPI. 
that is transcriptionally upregulated by those lipoxins I just told you about, and also controlled by resolvins. In addition, um, resolvin E1 significantly upregulates the expression of intestinal alkaline phosphatase, which has another entire uh, function. Moreover, lipoxins inhibit epithelial cell apoptosis. They inhibit that. G-protein coupled receptor 120, in fact, is activated by polyunsaturated fatty acids like EPA and DHA and even arachidonate. That can lead to the accumulation of cytosolic calcium and that can activate MAP kinases, which activate ERK-1-2, and that gives you an inhibition, ultimately, of the expression or the synthesis of interleukin-1-beta, and that in- normally would induce NF-kappa-B or activate it, and then that would cause tumor necrosis factor alpha-induced inflammation. That all gets inhibited by that lipoxin. So neutrophils also, uh, which are, of course, polymorphonuclear cells of the innate immune response, are actually the first immune cells that are recruited to the site of inflammation, but they're also important players in the first stages of the resolution. So lipoxins produced there reduce neutrophil recruitment to the inflamed tissue. There's a transepithelial migration and phagocytosis that's also controlled. So that protectin D1 I was telling you about, which comes from DHA, uh, promotes neutrophil phagocytosis. It's similar to lipoxins. And RVE1 reduces neutrophil transepithelial migration and therefore induces neutrophil phagocytosis. Moreover, both proteins D1, protein, protectin D1 and the resolvin D5, again, these are omega-3 fatty acid products, have been shown to reduce neutrophil endothelial interactions. One more thing, macrophages, which of course are always important for the resolution of intestinal inflammation, express high levels of GPR-120. So EPA and DHA-dependent activation of that G-protein coupled receptor 120 has been shown to repress AKT junk phosphorylation cascades and therefore NF-kappa-B induction, okay? So that, that's, fun- that's also being occurring in macrophages. So lipoxins enhance non-phlogistic phagocytosis of apoptotic neutrophils by those macrophages. And a treatment with lipoxin, excuse me, would actually polarize those intestinal macrophages into the resolving phenotype. So it'll go from M1 to M2, basically. EPA and DHA also inhibit T-cell proliferation, and they reduce directly interleukin-2. Now, if you recall from a couple of episodes back in Varev Med lecture, I told you that that uh, interleukin-2 is actually necessary for Treg activation. So even though interleukin-2 is pro-inflammatory, while it's stimulated, it also helps turn on the T-regulatory system, which is also uh, involved in generating what? A suppression of the immune response. So suppressing the re- or reducing interleukin-2 with these omega-3 fatty acids in T-cells isn't necessarily a good thing because it can also inhibit T-regulatory cell. So I'm going to leave that there right now, and I'm going to finish. I just got you a little bit more involved than you probably thought you wanted to with lipid metabolism, but I wanted you to understand where these fatty acids are involved and where they're associated with lipid metabolism, gene expression, transcription factors, a little bit of epigenetic discussion too. Next time, we're going to do more epigenetics and we get further into detail of how these fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids may be involved in controlling the inflammatory response. Thanks a lot for your time. I'm going to say bye for now. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry.